Thank you for joining me for today's Beast Watch News Update. News from the Internet's most comprehensive Bible prophecy news website, BeastWatchNews.com. I'm Kimberly Rogers Brown. A lot happened this week. Iran is taking an in-your-face stance to the United States and is gearing up for war, not only with Israel, but with the United States. How will the U.S. fare in a direct conflict with another superpower? Keep listening to hear what a recent report has to say. Iran's ally Hezbollah has infiltrated Israel's Golan border despite Israel's efforts to stop it. Iraq took another step to destroy its alliance, what's left of it, with the U.S. in favor of Iran. What is happening with Jared Kushner's peace deal? Is he getting ready to put Hamas in the lead seat over the Palestinian Authority? We'll take a look at how the Israelis view Palestinians in this election, too. Hear what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had to say about the Jewish state and equality for all its citizens this week. But first, a Purim supermoon and the Geula redemption. The push for non-Jews to interact with Jews for the purpose of influencing non-Jews to adopt Judaism continues First, because the Jews take every sign in the heavens as being for the Jews only, and second, by increasingly mixing with those they call Gentiles. Rabbi Yosef Berger, a rabbi of King David's tomb on Mount Zion, was overjoyed to hear of the upcoming confluence of astronomical events with Purim this week, The Purim supermoon will be the final in a series of three consecutive full moons or supermoons. The next appearance of supermoons will be a triad, culminating on the night before Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. This supermoon, as it is called, is a very good sign for Israel, according to Rabbi Berger. He explained that the opposite of a supermoon is, of course, a lunar eclipse, which is a bad omen for Israel. The rabbi also noted that this year is a leap year that's accomplished in the Hebrew calendar by adding another month of Adar. Redemption cannot come from anger or hatred, he said. Redemption is brought through happiness. This year, instead of just one month of happiness, we had two. And the moon will appear extra large on the holiday that begins the period of redemption, he said. Rabbi Berger is in contact with several hidden tzaddikim, those are righteous people, according to Judaism, whose identities are known to only a few rabbis. Last Shabbat, Rabbi Berger paid a visit to one of these hidden tzaddikim, and before he even had a chance to say a word, the holy man began to laugh in joy. Well, first of all, there is no such thing as holy men anywhere on the earth. We are only holy as part of a collective congregation, never as individuals. Yahweh's people are simply righteous, but only if Yahweh has attributed righteousness 
to them. So let's get that clarified. This rabbi told Rabbi Berger that we are very, very, very close to Geula, redemption. He has never acted or spoken like this, according to Rabbi Berger. He said that in order to prepare, we need to become very strong in joy and happiness. Well, yeah, everyone become very happy that Judaism is getting prepared to force you to deny Yeshua. Of course, you know that I say this tongue-in-cheek. We should be frightened a little bit, I think by what's about to happen. On Tuesday, February 26th, over 20,000 Jewish women gathered in over 100 different locations worldwide to dance, sing, and pray for the arrival of the Messianic era. I should put in here the Jewish Messianic era. These are Jewish women that are doing Geula gatherings all over the world or encouraging other women to do them as well. Pastor Mark Biltz read an article from Breaking Israel News and encouraged a woman whose last name is Lush and her colleagues by saying, we must do this. Right now I'm going to tell you, please, don't walk. Run from Pastor Mark Biltz. He hosted a prayer event focusing on the arrival of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. You know, Biltz does not understand that the Messiah is not a mere man, as is the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah is, you know, a man. Here is a video that shows Mark Biltz and Rabbi Itzhak Shapira, you can click on that in, in the transcript, talking about how to get people to connect with their Jewish roots. And you can hear that toward the end of the video. Friends, our roots are not Jewish. We are Hebrews, and our roots are Hebrew. Now, some don't like the term Hebrew roots, but right now, that's the best term we have. The other, only other one I can think of to describe us and to describe our walk is kingdom roots. So those who don't understand that Yahweh's kingdom is not a religion are falling into darkness. They are choosing between Judaism and Christianity. So what do I mean when I say kingdom roots? Well, let me ask you something. Will there be Judaism in the kingdom? No. Will there be Christianity in the kingdom? No. Will there be Islam in the kingdom? No. The kingdom is a nation with laws and a government to uphold and enforce those laws and it has a righteous king to govern. So please leave your religion and your religious leaders before it is too late. Biltz's Geula event had 40 women who opened with corporate prayer, recited the Shema, which is, according to Breaking Israel News, 
uh, among the most important of all Jewish prayers. Well, no. The Shema is from Deuteronomy and is part of all Hebrews' lives, not just those who are of the tribe of Judah. Here's the Shema. It starts in Deuteronomy 6, 5. You all should recognize this. This belongs to us, 12 tribes. And, of course, in this uh, event, they emphasized the absolute oneness of God. Oh, my. In Judaism, the absolute oneness of God that these women in uh, Pastor Biltz's church are recognizes this absolute oneness of God means the same thing as it does in Islam, which is that God has no son. They also recited sections of the Amidah, which is a central prayer, they say, in every Jewish prayer service. No! The Amidah is from the first temple period. Actually, it's from the tabernacle period. And it was part of all Hebrews' lives, not just those from the tribe of Judah. These include blessings for the ingathering of the exiles. Well, it's talking here about Jewish exiles, not those from the other tribes. Pastor Biltz does not understand that there are 12 tribes and that we don't convert to Judaism in order to get into Judaism because there's no Judaism in the kingdom. So if you convert to Judaism, well, you've not converted to getting into the kingdom You've just switched religious alliances. And by the way, if you go to Judaism, you will be denying Yeshua. The one who is God in the flesh, you will be denying him. So when they say Jewish exiles, they mean those who have accepted Judaism. They also prayed for rebuilding the Holy Temple. Good. And reinstating the temple service in Jerusalem. Yes. And then for reestablishing the kingship of the Jewish Messiah. This is not Yeshua, Mark built. There was scripture reading according to this article, worshiping, flagging, dancing, and they're calling on Yahweh to bring the Jewish Messiah. Friends, these women don't know what they're asking for. And Pastor Biltz doesn't know what he is asking for. Then in this article, there was Susie McElroy, who shared what it meant to her as a Christian to partner with Jewish women worldwide. She said, I am beyond blessed to have been able to join thousands of Jewish women to pray for the Geula. No, Susie, you are about to be cursed. There were other women from around the world in this article who created Geula groups to celebrate the coming Jewish Messiah, and none of them understood what they were doing, if they were Gentile, at least, pushing non-Jews into the arms of Judaism continues as rabbis continue to announce signs for telling the arrival of their Messiah, you know, the, the supermoon that will appear on Purim. Uh, and it is a sign, according to Rabbi Yosef Berger. So the question is, will the Jewish Messiah be revealed this year? Well, the 
Rabbi Berger article hints strongly that the answer is absolutely yes. Now let's go to peace. Let's take a look at what's happening with Jared Kushner's peace deal. Let me correct his the spelling of his name there. Is it possible that Jared Kushner's peace deal could put Hamas in charge of the West Bank and Gaza Strip? Well, let's take a look. In a February 25th interview on Sky News Arabia, Jared Kushner said the U.S. would like to see the West Bank and Gaza Strip unified under one leadership and that he would like to see them come together. Now, right here you're looking at a picture of uh, a building in the northern Gaza Strip that's owned by Hamas and Clearly, you can see what the sentiment of Hamas is. Kushner's statement puts many scenario uh, scenarios on the table. Fatah and Hamas could finally reconcile, or a large-scale Israeli military operation could be carried out to topple Hamas, so the PA takes over the Gaza Strip. However, the second scenario seems unlikely, since Israel has waged three wars against Gaza between 2008 and 2014 without ever having eliminated Hamas, so that brings up the third scenario. According to this uh, article, the Kushner's words can be interpreted as saying that Hamas is a candidate to be in charge of Gaza and the West Bank together after being persuaded or pressured by Egypt, Qatar, and Turkey to accept this role. According to Abdullah, Abdullah, which, who is a member of Fatah's Revolutionary Council and head of the political committee in the Palestinian Legislative Council, according to Al Monitor. Here you're also looking at a headquarters of one of the brigades of the military, one of the military wings of Hamas terrorist organizations in northern Gaza Strip. Clearly, Hamas is a military organization. It is not a peace organization. The PA is a peace organization, or that's what it says about itself, although they fund terrorism, as you know. But see, Abbas is not playing cards with Kushner, and so it may be that Kushner wants to push Hamas into the PA's role. It is unusual for a U.S. official to openly speak of bringing together Fatah and Hamas under one government, especially if it's going to be Fatah under Hamas, and to do so without specifying conditions. In the Sky News Arabia interview, interview uh, Kushner merely, merely said, So what we will propose is hopefully something where both sides can gain a lot more than they give and where both sides will have to make compromises, but hopefully the benefits far outweigh the compromise. 
Well, the traditional U.S. position has demanded that Hamas recognize agreements with Israel and renounce violence before it can be part of any Palestinian government. Most recently, such conditions were stated in the Reconciliation Agreement in October 2017. Meanwhile, the PA will not be the one playing this leadership role since both the U.S. and Israeli behaviors seem to indicate they want to eliminate it. That's the PA. They want to eliminate the PA. For example, on February 1st, the decision to end all U.S. aid to the Palestinian security forces entered into force. That day, the U.S. Agency for International Development announced it was ending all its Palestinian projects, closing all its offices in the Palestinian territories, and it canceled the contracts of hundreds of Palestinian employees. So, is this a ploy to get the uh, PA under Mahmoud Abbas back to the peace table? Who does the U.S. want to deal with in Israel? Hamas? Whose charter calls for killing every Israeli? Or the PA, who claims to want peace? I can't imagine a world in which the U.S. would rather deal with Hamas than the Palestinian Authority. What I can imagine is a deal that arranges for Israel to annex all of the West Bank and Gaza. See? But to make this fair for Israeli-Palestinians, the Jewish state bill would have to be heavily modified or even overturned. The Jewish state bill says Israel is a Jew-only nation. Here are the words right out of Benjamin Netanyahu's own mouth this week. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Sunday that the state of Israel belongs to the Jewish people alone. Now, how did this come about? Well, it was in response to a comment made by Israeli actress Rotem Sila, who wrote on social media that Israel should be a country of all its citizens. Israeli actress uh, Gal Gadot also pulled no punches after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel is not a state for all its citizens over the weekend. Oh my word. What I said last year about the Jewish state bill that infuriated so many people is now coming directly out of Netanyahu's own mouth. Here's what actress Rotem Sila said. When the hell will someone in this government let the Israeli public know that this is a country for all its citizens and that every person is born equal and also that the Arabs are human beings, she asked in an Instagram story last Sunday. Of course, it's kind of meant by her to be a, a jab at a remark that the Israeli culture minister Miri Regev made, made during a recent TV interview in which he reportedly urged citizens to vote in the upcoming elections. We're going to take a look at what that 
means for the Palestinians, you know, the, these Israeli elections. But, but for the moment, let's return to the article. Netanyahu's reply to Rotem Sila was, Dear Rotem Sila, I wrote, I read what you wrote. First of all, an important correction. Israel is not a state for all its citizens. According to a basic law we passed, Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people and the Jewish people only. And then he continues, As you wrote, there is no problem with the Arab citizens of Israel. Really? They have equal rights. <laughs> really? Like all of us. And the Likud government has invested more in the Arab sector than any other government. The Likud just want to sharpen the central question in these elections. Should Israel be led by a strong right-wing government headed by myself or by a left-wing government of your Lapid and Gantz with the support of the Arab parties. Lapid and Gantz have no other way of forming a government, and such a government will undermine the security of the state and the citizens. The decision will be made in another month at the ballot box. Good day. Well, you know, Netanyahu tries to have it both ways. Israel is for the Jews only. But... Because there are Palestinians still living in Israel, he has to say they have the same rights as Jews because of the claim that Israel is the Middle East's only democracy. You know, this is doublespeak. Because this definition means that Israel is for Jews and the Palestinians, according to what he said in that paragraph above, right after he said that Israel is the nation-state for the Jewish people and the Jewish people only. So now let's look about this uh, election. Do all Israeli citizens, you know, the Palestinians and the Jews both, uh, have the same rights? Do the Palestinians even have the right to vote? We're going to look at this. Here's an article by Antony Lowenstein, you know, a Jewish man, that was published in TRT World, in which he says that less than one in four Palestinians have the right to vote in Israeli elections. But this election will inevitably affect every single Palestinian Lowenstein also says that the Palestinians have almost no influence over the Israeli elections. Now this article portrays also the harassment and discrimination by Israelis against Palestinians every day. Millions of Palestinians are rendered invisible and are deemed a threat to the Israeli in the Israeli media and the political sphere. Few Palestinians think that the election will change anything in their lives. This new political power, a party rather, Jewish power, has its roots in the ideological obsession of murdered Rabbi Mir Kahane, who believed in Jewish ethnic purity, 
forcibly expelling all Palestinians and living under religious Jewish law. You know what that is. That's the Talmud. Although such views aren't necessarily shared by the majority of Israeli Jews today, the idea of kicking Palestinians off their lands is now expressed by growing numbers of mainstream politicians and the general public. Jewish power is so extreme that even some of Israel's biggest U.S. supporters recently expressed opposition to this Netanyahu partnership. The group's election manifesto includes supporting total war against Israel's enemies and bringing more Jews to Israel to battle what it views as the evils of assimilation. The Palestinians are primarily framed as a nuisance that many Israelis hope would simply disappear This framing Palestinians as a nuisance is exactly what the Jewish supremacy doctrine is all about. If you're not a Jew, you're an insect. You're a nuisance. You're an insect. The problem with Israel annexing all the land, as I've spoken about in the past, aside from the blowout that would happen in the Arab world, is quite simply that Israel is not capable of governing according to the rules of equality held in Jewish democracy, but in the Torah. They're not capable of it. They're not capable of following the Torah. The rabbis had already overwritten the Torah by making the Talmud their authority by the time Yeshua came to the earth. And they've had an additional 2,000 years of piling sin upon sin with their Talmud since Yeshua. The Israeli government and the Kabad Kabal are not interested in a world that includes people who are not Jews. Period. Therefore, the ideal scenario of annexing Palestinian land dies with the sure knowledge that the mostly Hebrew population of non-Jews will be punished for being non-Jewish Hebrews. Remember, folks, that this Jewish sentiment will extend around the world if they can make that happen. Trump advisor Jared Kushner recently said that his plan would finalize Israeli borders and Palestinian Union, whatever that means in practice. The way I see it right now is that any kind of peace will need to be enforced militarily using U.S. and other nations' troops. Peace with Hamas in the leading seat is not possible, and the PA just simply isn't interested. Actually, the Jews are not interested either, or they wouldn't be putting forward their Jewish supremacy doctrine. By the way, I want you to understand, I have no problem with this. I have no problem with that. As long as this is not because the Palestinians or a Palestinian, was caught doing this. You see, 
here's in this article, according to the same article, the soldiers that you saw in that picture harassed these Palestinians who were guarding their sheep. The soldiers drove perilously close to the sheep, nearly physically hitting them, some of whom were pregnant. Israeli activist Guy Hirschfeld, Hirschfeld, which is written about in this article, he's one of the most prominent dissidents operating in the West Bank to defend Palestinians against Israeli aggression, swung into action. He drove his four-wheel drive toward the soldiers and verbally confronted them. There's a picture of him doing that in this article. He attempted to stop the soldiers by filming their actions, driving his car close to theirs and speaking to the Palestinians about the best ways to avoid arrest. And he told Lowenstein that the soldiers were operating outside the closed military zone and that their actions toward these Palestinian shepherds were violating the law. It is clear. The Jews are divided on the Palestinian issue. This issue divides people worldwide. Some Jewish activists simply want justice for the Palestinians and a stop of harassment. This is also what Yahweh wants. Exodus 24, or Exodus 12:49, rather. There you have it. Exodus 12:49. One law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. The motto from the Israeli government should be, kill the terrorists, protect those who are not terrorists, you know, like those shepherds guarding their sheep. Some people will say that the Palestinians produce terrorists, and they do. This would stop if the Israelis would follow the Torah instead of their own law. Given this very real situation, this Israeli election will underscore the inequality and Torah violations against the Hebrew Palestinians. And now Kushner said, what? Kushner's declared solution to final status issues is that the goal of resolving these borders is really to eliminate the borders. (laughs) Did Kushner really mean that what the world heard him say, that there is to be no Palestinian state with defined borders? Then what will become of the Palestinians? You see, the peace plan is enjoying such confusion in the press But it is clear in scripture that the land will be divided. Dividing it will be to return it to the same status that happened under kings Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The split kingdom will only be healed by the true Messiah who is God in the flesh, Yeshua. The U.S. consulate in Jerusalem has been folded into the American embassy in the city, effectively downgrading U.S. representation to the Palestinians. So the U.S. is going along with the Jewish making Palestinians into a nuisance 
attitude. Not only are they now a displaced people, but they are now to also be a disappeared people. Again, many may disagree with me about the downgrading, displacement, and virtual disappearance of the Palestinians from the Jewish state because of Palestinian terrorism. And no doubt that is a problem. And it is a crime against Yahweh and his Torah. But that is precisely the reason that Israel should have total control over all the land in Israel so that terrorists can be punished according to the Torah. However, this would mean that the Jews would have to acknowledge that Yahweh has people who are not of their fold, as Yeshua said in John 10.16, in which he said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. He's talking to the the people there in Israel, in Judea. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And these people must be given their original tribal territories. Splitting the land between the southern and northern kingdoms in this upcoming peace deal is a a defiance of the purpose of restoration. Restoring the tribes to their rightful place is the correct way to go, Mr. Netanyahu. And all you Jewish Kabad Kabal people, There is no official date for the plan's release, according to this article, but the White House is considering announcing it out shortly after the Israeli election, according to Haaretz. The release will need to come after the election. Why? If the Jewish Messiah is revealed this year, he will be the one to rubber stamp that peace plan. But he won't want to do that until the election winners are already in his inner circle, especially if enforcing the plan will mean war, internal war. Now let's go take a look at what's happening on Temple Mount. Temple Mount is ablaze with violence again. It was closed down until March 13th due to a Palestinian firebomb attack on March 12th. The Jerusalem uh, Post reports that a Molotov cocktail was thrown at an Israeli police station close to Temple Mount. Uh, It mildly injured one Israeli police officer from smoke inhalation. And 10 people were arrested in connection to the attack. Three of them were reportedly Palestinians. We don't know who the rest of them are, according to this particular article. Here's a man lighting a Molotov cocktail, if you've never seen one. The attack prompted the Israeli police to close down the Temple Mount, and that resulted in Palestinian riots. Now, you probably already knew this if you're watching the news, but did you know that the Palestinians are carrying dead bodies onto Temple Mount as part of this war strategy? During the riots, a Palestinian funeral procession was prevented from entering the Temple Mount by the Israeli police since the site had been closed off due to the firebomb attack, and then another riot ensued 
you know, as we said, Asaf Freed, the spokesman for the temple organizations, explained that the Palestinians routinely bring their dead into the Dome of the Rock before burial. It is indeed very strange to bring a dead body to the Temple Mount, but this happens almost every day, according to Freed. It should be noted that the Yusifa Cemetery outside of Sha'ar HaRakamim is technically closed and has been so by court order for 20 years, but the Palestinians continue to bury there unhindered. Here's the procession trying to get up to Temple Mount that was uh, stopped. Apparently... This is not aberrant behavior for Muslims as it is for Jews and Christians. Dr. Mordecai Kedar explained that according to Islamic law, it is not problematic to bring a body into the Dome of the Rock. And according to Jewish tradition, the Messiah will arrive via the Sha'ar HaRakamim, The Ottomans built the cemetery in front of the gate in order to prevent the Jewish Messiah from arriving. Dr. Kidar, a senior lecturer in the Department of Arabic at Bar-Alan University, explained that the cemetery was established out of the Muslims' misunderstanding Jewish eschatology. They believed that the Jewish Messiah would be a Kohen, a man of the priestly caste, but this is not correct. Oh, really? Huh. We don't know who this Jewish Messiah will be then, do we? Also, a cemetery of non-Jews does not have ritual impurity. So the Muslim cemetery outside of Sha'ar HaRakamim will not pose any problem for the Jewish Messiah. Well, he will... That'll pose a problem for Yeshua, which is why he's going to destroy uh, <laughs> everything before he arrives. I, I don't know. I, that's just speculation on my part. You really have to do a total rewrite of the Torah to reach the conclusion that any dead body doesn't have ritual impurity. Oh, yeah. They, the Jews, did rewrite the Torah. It's called the Talmud. Now let's take a look at war preparations. And we'll go to Israel-Iran war preparations. Israel's border is less secure under President Donald Trump's watch than it has been in the last 50 years. The Israeli military said Wednesday it had uncovered a militant network run by the Lebanese Hezbollah group inside Syria along with the border with Israel. The military said the network, which Hezbollah runs together with Iran's Revolutionary Guard, is stockpiling weapons, collecting intelligence, and recruiting locals for attacks against Israel. Hezbollah has been operating covertly and without the knowledge of Syrian President Bashar Assad's government, the Israeli military said. So here you see the the border of uh, the Golan border, which runs between Lebanon and Israel and the Golan Heights. Um, the unit 
under con the command of Ali Musa Dakduk is said to defer directly to Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah, according to Debkafile, IDF Colonel Amit Fisher, head of the Bashan Division and the Golan Sector, reported that the Hezbollah unit is still getting organized and is meanwhile engaged in intelligence gathering on Israeli troop depo deployments and mapping out routes and targets. Debkafile assumes that the IDF High Command had its own reasons for making this disclosure at this time, since it is not new, but Hezbollah has never paused in its attempts to establish terrorist structures on the Syrian Golan with a view to opening a second front against Israel if attacked. Its presence has been consistently covered by Debkafile since last July when the IDF allowed Syrian army units to take over rebel-held regions opposite Israel's Golan border. Our military sources, Debka says, revealed at the time that Hezbollah's fighters were integrated inside the Syrian units. They were disguised in Syrian army uniforms and were setting up observation posts and terrorist teams opposite IDF positions. It was those Hezbollah posts near Kanitra in the Syrian Druze village of Al-Qadir that Israel shells, uh, tanks shelled in early February. March 13 marks two months since Israel wound up its northern shield for eliminating Hezbollah's cross-border tunnels from Lebanon, an operation which, incidentally, had little effect on the balance of strength between Israel and Hezbollah. Underlining the Hezbollah threat from southwest Syria will no doubt contribute to the campaign launched by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and U.S. Senators Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz for gaining congressional recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan, and that does belong to Israel, the kingdom's Israel, the commonwealth of Israel. But there is another military factor at work. U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq are gearing up for action against the Iraqi Shiite militia concentrations swarming through western Iraq and Syria. And let me get that. Iran has plans for stopping the U.S. in Syria and Iraq while simultaneously maneuvering around those pesky U.S. sanctions. First, let's look at military action Iran is threatening if the U.S. intervenes in its oil smuggling activities. According to Haaretz, Iran has warned Israel of a firm response if the oil shipments are targeted by Israel. Iran will respond firmly to any Israeli naval action against its oil shipments, it said. That's according to Iran's defense minister on Wednesday in comments he made that came a week after Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, said its navy could act against Iran, Iranian oil smuggling to evade U.S. sanctions.
Iran's defense minister Amir Hatami said such confrontation would be considered as piracy and warned that if it happens, we will firmly respond. The Iranian armed forces have uh, certain, certainly the capabilities to protect the country's shipping lanes in the best way against any possible threat, Hatami said. Iran uses a variety of measures to evade sanctions, including changing the names of ships or flag registries, switching off location transponders on ships, and conducting ship-to-ship transfers offshore and away from large trade hubs. Iranian officials also have threatened to block the Strait of Hormuz if the United States attempts to stop its oil exports. It isn't enough that Iran is threatening naval action against the U.S., but here is what you need to know. Iran is now prepared to launch the long-threatened deployment of its naval fleet in the Atlantic Ocean. According to Reuters, the Iranian Navy said it will deploy warships in the Atlantic Ocean in March, according to a top commander last Friday, as the Islamic Republic seeks to increase the operating range of its naval forces to the backyard of the United States. A senior Iranian military official said last month that the Navy could sail in the Atlantic near U.S. waters since U.S. aircraft carriers operate in the international waters near Iran. In your face, U.S. He said Sahand, a newly built destroyer, would be one of the warships that they're going to send. Sahand has a flight deck for helicopters, and Iran says it is equipped with anti-aircraft and anti-ship guns, surface-to-surface and surface-to-air missiles, and has electronic warfare capabilities. Hassani said in December that Iran would soon send two or three vessels on a mission to Venezuela. And Iran's navy has extended its reach in recent years in the Indian Ocean and the Gulf of Aden to protect its ships from Somali pirates. So they're looking for another way around U.S. sanctions, which is they want to control Iraq's banks. Iran's President Hassan Rouhani visited Baghdad this past Monday, March 11th, for the main purpose of harnessing Iraq's banks as Tehran's main mechanism for beating the U.S. sanction on its oil sales. The two countries agreed in principle to set up a mechanism for enabling Iran's foreign clients to purchase oil and gas in defiance of President Donald Trump's sanctions by registering the transactions as purchases of Iraqi oil. Payment is to be deposited in Iraqi banks in Baghdad and Basra, then quietly transferred in euros to banks in Tehran. Prime Minister Mahdi does not expect the Trump administration to make trouble over this subterfuge. He is under enormous pressure from Iran and the Iraqi Shiite militias to order U.S. forces to withdraw from Iraq. He therefore believes he holds 
something over Washington's head, which is a threat to give in to Iran's pressure and order the 5,200 American troops to pack up and leave their bases should the U.S. take action against the Iraqi banks, which collude in busting U.S. sanctions. This order would undermine the Trump administration's strategy in the Middle East and the Gulf. The U.S. grants substantial financial and military support to Baghdad to secure a linchpin for this strategy against Tehran's grab for dominant influence in the Iraqi capital. However, the deal is already in the bag. On February 6th, the governor of the Iraqi Central Bank reached an agreement in principle. Meanwhile, Washington warned the Mahdi government against conniving with Tehran to beat America's anti-Iran sanctions. Washington and Baghdad are on the brink of a showdown. This impasse is the reason why the U.S. has in recent days sent additional forces to fortify its bases in Iraq. The extra units have been drawn from U.S. bases in Israel and Jordan. Now we're going to take a look at how would the United States fare against China and Russia in a war. Well, in this article titled, U.S. Gets Its Ass Handed to It in War Games, here's a $24 billion fix. It says the U.S. keeps losing hard in simulated wars with Russia and China. Bases burn, warships sink. But we could fix the problem for about $24 billion a year, one well-connected expert said. That's less than 4% of the Pentagon budget. In our games, when we fight Russia and China, Rand analyst David Ochmanik said this afternoon, or that's one other day, last week, Blue gets its ass handed to it. In other words, in Rand's war games, which are often sponsored by the Pentagon, the U.S. forces, colored blue on war game maps, that's blue, you know, is the color of Jacob, suffers heavy losses in one scenario after another and still can't stop Russia or China. That's red. That's Esau. From achieving their objectives, like overrunning U.S. allies. No, it's not a Red Dawn nightmare scenario where the commies conquer Colorado. But losing the Baltics or Taiwan would shatter American alliances, shock the global economy, and topple the world order that the U.S. has led since World War II. How could this happen? When we spend over $700 billion a year on everything, from 1,000-foot-long nuclear-powered aircraft carriers to supersonic stealth fighters, well, it turns out U.S. superweapons have a little too much Achilles in their heels. In every case I know of, said Robert Work, a former Deputy Secretary of Defense with decades of wargaming experience, The F-35 rules the sky when it's in the sky, but it gets killed on the ground in large numbers. Even the hottest jet has to land somewhere, but big air bases on land and big aircraft carriers on the water turn out to be big targets for long-range precision-guided missiles. One American monopoly, such 
once rather an American monopoly, such smart weapons are now a rapidly growing part of Chinese, Russian and Chinese arsenals, as are the long-range sensors, communication networks, and command systems required to aim them. So, as potential adversaries improve their technology, things that rely on sophisticated base infrastructure like runways and fuel tanks are going to have a hard time, Ochmanik said. Things that sail on the surface of the sea are going to have a hard time. Worst of all, work, Ochmanik said, the U.S. just doesn't take body blows. It takes a hard hit to the head as well. Oh, that head of that beast. Hmm. Well, that's maybe related. Its communication satellites, wireless networks, and other command and control systems suffer such heavy hacking and jamming that they are, in Ochmanic's words, suppressed if not shattered. The U.S. has war-gamed cyber and electronic warfare in field exercises, work said, but the simulated enemy forces tend to shut down U.S. networks so effectively that nothing works and nobody else gets any training done. Whenever we have an exercise and the Red Force really destroys our command and control, we stop the exercise, he said, instead of trying to figure out how to keep fighting when your command post gives you nothing but a blank screen and radio static. The Chinese call this system destruction warfare, he said. They plan to attack the American battle network at all levels, relentlessly, and they practice it all the time. Well, the recommendation is to find $24 billion in the military budget for more hardware, such as missiles and shoring up communication systems. The die is cast. The U.S. military is in the situation it is in. Now, I have reported for many years how Russia and China are outstripping the U.S. in every military category. The time is coming, and perhaps sooner, perhaps later, when Americans will pay the price for its leader's hubris and arrogance. Here's one more article that you can click on in Beast Watch News titled, Why the U.S. Could Lose the Next Big War. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.